arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. You talk about something called the soul's high adventure. My general formula for my students is follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Can my bliss be my life, well, love, or my life's work? Your is life. it my work or my life? Well, if the work that you're doing is the work that you chose to do because you are enjoying it, that's it. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. Alan Sackett, Joseph Campbell, is ready for the adventure he gets. He's in Los Angeles and he is achieving. He has a girlfriend whom he checks in with to assure her that he is achieving. Nothing wrong with achieving if it's what Campbell calls following your bliss. Alan's bliss surely takes him by surprise when he gets McGowan's phone call. And his subsequent trip to Barkley, Idaho is where he will build a business with his aunt store and partner with a woman who wasn't just interested in last quarter's gross profit. But there's more to the story, yes, and it does have to do with Roscoe and his gang putting the squeeze on Alan. Next, the end of a certain movie, which I will mention in the closing of this podcast, has always impressed me not because it resolves a dilemma or a problem, rather it demonstrates the goodness of humanity. Here is the final episode of Downsized, a novel of possibilities by Robert P. Fitton starts now. Downsized by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 20. The next vinyl record ended as Alan sunk his fork into the pancakes and swished the pancake chunk into thick maple syrup. These are really good, Suni. You want more? I can make extra. This'll fill me up till supper. He gazed across the snow-skimmed upper deck railing and the tree branches and landscape were bleached with a thin layer. Good, she said, rubbing his shoulders. You want to take a walk outside? Alan nodded. What are you going to do if the store doesn't make it? Oh, I'll probably flee to Canada. Sunny grinned. You can always come work for me at Benson's. I don't know what I'm going to do. Or you can go back to Los Angeles. Oh, I don't think that's in the cards, he said, thinking about the debts again. He finished the last pancake wedge and wiped his mouth. I think I'm gaining weight. Good. She cleared the table and set the dishes in the sink. Then she grabbed their vests and stocking hats. Come on, let's get some fresh Idaho air before the sun goes down. With a full belly and relaxed, Alan opened the back sliders. He pushed his sneaker into the smooth snow, and the crisp air entered his lungs. He took her hand, and she closed the slider as they scurried down the deck stairs. You don't mind if we stay on the trail. Even though we checked the area, I don't fancy being bitten by one of Tug's old rusted traps. We could walk the shore. The hill where Ben was injured now appeared on the glistening snow. Alan put his arm around Suni as the fireplace's smoke spiraled up through the trees. Ahead, the blue lake was bright through the branches, and he smiled. Having his arm secure around Suni and being in love with her it dwarfed all his accomplishments in his life. They descended the hill, and he reached the water's edge as the little waves lapped the sand. We can follow the shore right around to the dock. It takes about ten minutes. You know, said Alan, looking back at the smoke rising from the chimney atop the island hill. They slowly traced the shoreline. You ought to expand the A-frame. Make it weather tight. What do you mean, live out here? Yeah. She grinned and peered back at the A-frame as they circled the island. I never really considered living on the island. No, commute. Upgrade the boat. This lake is frozen solid in winter, Alan. Then get an ice boat with a sail. Live on the island. The sun hit his face as he rounded the hill and shielded his eyes toward the channel. How much would it cost? Ah, I piqued your interest. You piqued my interest a long time ago. With the money from the house, and if you sold the lot, 
You could have a palace out here. Get a generator. Back away from the house. What a place to live, Sunni. She rolled her tongue around her mouth and thought. Alan heard the sound of a motor across the lake. A few seconds later, a fast-moving blue-and-white boat shot out of the channel. Oh no, something's wrong. Alan took her hand and they jogged forward. The boat quickly cut through the blue water as they moved back to the dock on the forward side of the island. That's Kenny! Soon he continued to hold his hand as Kenny slowed the boat and swung it around. Alan thought it encouraging that he was smiling and waving his arm as he approached the dock. Alleluia! Kenny threw the rope. Alan caught it and dropped it over the snow-capped dock post. You have to come back! Suni's brow remained furrow. What's the matter? Pretty snow out here. Alan pulled him on the dock. Kenny, is everything all right? Alan, your store. What happened? I hate to ruin your day, but you have to come back. It's been packed all day. Alan looked at Suni and a huge smile filled her face. I told you. You mean local people? Yeah, some local people, some from Carnerville. People who saw your website around the state. Mrs. Hennessy said there were some people from Minnesota and Iowa. It worked, old buddy, it worked. Alan remained skeptical, even though he knew Kenny was telling the truth. When they had docked the boat and started down the snow-skimmed road, he saw over a dozen cars parked along the side of Aunt Amanda's store and spilled into the parking lot. Congratulations, Alan, said Suni as they followed Kenny. See, it's starting again, said Kenny. Nora Pillsbury was booked over. Alan, thrilled by the response, kept smiling as he darted past a couple of cars parked haphazardly across the lot. They climbed the dock stairs and quickly entered the warmer stockroom. He heard the customers out front. An herbal raspberry tea filled the air when he opened the front door and he felt as if he were in a dream. Several couples were on the mezzanine with Kenny's wife overlooking antique furniture. Even Melba was behind the counter with Amanda loading the newly purchased merchandise into one of the red and white bags Alan had special ordered for the store. Kenny hit him on the shoulder. You have a good feel for this, Alan. Thanks for your help, Kenny, both you and Jill. Are you kidding? This is good for the town. Mrs. Hennessy walked with the family from one of the center aisles and pointed at Alan. Well, good. I'm glad you're back. Now get to work. She took him by the arm and led him to the register as soon he smiled. You're being pressed into service. We have a family here from Sioux Falls, the Barlows. Games for the children, crafts for mother, and dad was looking at some furniture in the Victrola's upstairs. Start ringing. My pleasure. Then she whispered in his ear. We're really raking in the dough. Can't argue with that, said Alan, moving toward the antique brass register. My son found your store on his computer when we were looking for things. I had some time off. This snow makes the place look like we've really come back in time. Alan rang in the items he had priced, hung on the hooks, and stocked on the shelves. When the man handed him a crisp $100 bill, with the customers buzzing about the store, he realized what the transformation might mean. He counted out the change and asked the man if he wanted to see the furniture or the Victrollers. On the way up the stairs, the register rang again. You really need some music playing in here, said the father as they reached the top, especially with Christmas coming. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, I want one of those old RCA Victrollers and a few records. He never asked for a price. And I'm looking for something old too, said the man's wife, peering down the mezzanine. Alan noticed many pieces of furniture were already sold. Something for the hall, like a deacon's bench. Ben, leaning on crutches, waved at Alan from across the mezzanine. Over here! Hey, Benji, I'll have to put you on the payroll. Ben pointed at the bench. Right here, this is perfect! Alan followed the family around. The mother ran her fingers along the wood. Alan smiled at Ben. I owe you a commission, young man. Fifty percent. We'll talk later, said Alan as he lifted the bench. Then he turned toward the man. Let me bring you over to the Victrolas. More people arrived, jingling the front doorbells below. Alan crossed the store, stunned at the activity, but was aware he'd need more stock. As the late afternoon shadows faded, Alan stood on the balcony and leaned over the railing. Entire sections of aisles were depleted of stock, 
and he had transported furniture into trucks and vans all afternoon. Sooney and the children had gone with Melba to the upstairs apartment to make dinner. He couldn't see Mrs. Hennessy from this angle, but she had just finished counting out a prodigious pile of cash and credit card slips that Kenny brought with him for deposit tomorrow morning. About a half an hour, Alan, said Sooney from inside the apartment as the aroma from a roast drifted into the store. She turned and smiled. I knew you could do it, Alan. Thanks. Is Mrs. Hennessy staying? Mrs. Hennessy, are you having dinner with us? Unless you want to pay me time and a half. Set a place, Sooney. Make sure you get decaf and no butter on the potatoes. Alan turned to Sooney. I heard it, Alan. The front doorbell shook and Jacob, pipe propped in the corner of his mouth, strolled inside. He gazed up at Alan and nodded. Evening, Alan. And it is a good evening. You missed all the action there, Professor. Oh, I am aware of what happened up here this weekend, Alan. And you've taken your first step. We were very busy. No, you've proved on a small scale, of course, that your thoughts about making this a historic tourist town will work. Oh, this is only one weekend. No, no, no. You're on your way, and so is the station. Tomorrow morning we'll have heat. Really? I have to get back to town, but I have a few minutes. Come over when you can. You won't believe what we've done this week. Okay, I will. He started along the mezzanine. Mrs. Hennessy. I heard. I'll tell them. How are you, Mrs. Hennessy? asked Jacob. Tired. Busy day? Alan bounded down the stairs. Crazy, but Mrs. Hennessy saved the day. Oh, he's such a BSer, said Mrs. Hennessy. But confidentially, you can't get ahead in this world unless you stretch things a little. Alan grinned and moved with Jacob onto the porch. Alan, I'm convinced that if the railroad obliges, that we can have trains pulling into that station. I'm going to have to hire help. They moved across the parking lot's frozen mud. Sounds as though we need to get moving on this project. Maybe start with some houses that people can tour and get others where they can stay. Exactly. Why don't we schedule another meeting at Town Hall? You know, Alan, he said as they crossed the tracks, I was praying that your website idea would work. Imagine if the whole town were on a website. I have, I have. Alan looked across the highway at the new wood-shingled roof. Below, a colorful combination of colors circled the building's trim work, and a light pastel brown stucco was visible even in the low light. This looks like an old-fashioned railroad station. We finished painting yesterday before the temperature dropped. We all figured you could use the time on the island. Alan smiled as they waited for a car to pass on the highway, and then they started across the station parking lot. But Jacob brought him around the building once, and then turned on the lights inside. The beginnings of a new hardwood floor spread the length of the station, and bronze-framed thermal windows were installed around the building. Jacob held a thin panel door. We've got a heavy door coming down from the Turner Place north of town. This is great. Alan stepped up to the polished brass ticket counter. You know, people are really going to like this. Yes, sir, this place will be filled with people. Excellent. Alan continued to walk around the interior, passing the exposed plumbing at the planned coffee shop. The center benches were sanded with stain and varnish. What do you think? asked Jacob, still near the door. Think you've done one hell of a job, Professor. I'm very optimistic. Jacob looked outside. Two car doors slammed in quick succession. I'll call you tomorrow. Okay. Jacob exited through the side door. Alan squinted and panned the spacious interior. To his right, a well-dressed man in a black top coat stepped through the front door. Can I help you? The man turned toward the outside. Through the door, Roscoe, wearing a silver-gray suit and a brimmed hat, walked inside. Alan's stomach jolted as if he had just been shot. No, but you can help me, Sackett. What are you doing up here? Think you know why I'm here, Chisler? You bolt town with our money and then expect us to just sit back like patsies? He strutted past the other two men and faced Alan. You think you're dealing with idiots here, Sackett? What's the problem? Roscoe glanced at his two companions, and a fixed grin appeared on his face. We've come up here to give you some terms. Develop a plan that everyone can live with. Listen, I'm making the payments. 
Roscoe raised his brows and then nodded. Yeah, you have. But we have all your records, Sackett. We know you paid down the credit cards with our money. We also know you've been using the rest of the money to pay down the loan. You really think that's wise? It did what I had to do. I haven't been able to locate work. Not my problem. I'm not an employment agency. Listen, this ain't gonna work. Sooner or later, you're gonna run out of money and not be able to pay us back. Alan pressed his hands against the wall. I need time. Oh, of course. We're gonna give you time to get your house in order, so to speak. You gonna kill me? Roscoe grinned at his friends and shook his head. I must have a bad reputation. I don't think it's going to come to that, do you? Alan didn't have an answer. Gathering up such vast funds was not something he could readily do. His hand shook as he spoke. Look, what do you care as long as I pay every month? Roscoe sat on an unfinished bench. He studied the interior of the station. We're calling the shots here, Sackett, not you. I'm a reasonable individual, Sackett. You have to the 22nd. In front of that town hall. Payment in full. Alan knew such a schedule was impossible, but he didn't dare argue with Roscoe. Okay? Good. He stood again and looked around the station. This is a serious problem. You came to us with good references and job prospects. I don't have to insult you, Sackett, but without a job, you're screwed. Frankly, I don't give a damn where you get the money as long as you pay us back. I understand. Good. You have the time, but listen. I had a chance to drive through this town. Nice little place. Sure, you could make a nice life for yourself up here. But it ain't gonna happen if you don't have the money. I'll meet you in front of that town hall at 1230 on the 22nd. You can hand over the money any way you like. And you won't see me again. Alan closed his eyes for a few moments as a surge of emotion overcame him. Tightened his brow as Roscoe extended his hand. I'll have your money. Good. I'll be there waiting. Roscoe turned and again gazed around the station. His men opened the outside door and he disappeared into the darkness. Alan staggered across the floor and fell back to another bench across the room. He closed his eyes and pinched the bridge of his nose. His biggest fear was losing Sunni and his new life up here. Roscoe would watch him closely. Fleeing the area or staying on the run was not a viable plan. He stood and he began to pace. His only hope lay now in the lawsuit filed against Lambert's. But such court proceedings could be stalled for years. To turn around a settlement in a few weeks was ludicrous. He lifted his hand slowly to the light switch and swept his fingers down. He headed for the opening in the darkened landscape. He fixated on the new moon as the remnants of car exhaust lingered in the cool outside air. Across the highway, the lights of the general store were crisp in the night. The website had worked, and the business would continue to grow, but never reach the level he needed so soon. As he looked back at the twinkling town lights, he realized the row of historic houses offered great potential. The station roof, glowing white in the moonlight, offered even more promise, the possibility of Barclay being a scheduled train stop. Alan could feel the future. He faced south and then walked the metal rail and the cross ties. Years from now, with the rehab of the old houses, lodging, historical tours, and restaurants would grab the town. The websites, magazine advertising, and marketing promotions would draw the tourists to Barkley, Idaho. He put his hands in his pockets as he headed back across the highway. The future of this town might not include him. In the morning, when he ordered more merchandise for the general store, he would also have to place a call to Nick Conti. He only had a few weeks to turn things around. Roscoe was capable of anything. He worried less about his own life and more for the safety of those around him. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 21 Alan was unable to reach the vacationing Nick Conti and had to wait until the weekend for his return. But he learned that Nick had prompted Lambert's to pay either his severance or a settlement. For three days, Alan had debated whether to talk to Kenny about getting a loan, but was reluctant to pray his past debts before anyone in Barclay. Yet he had no choice, and when he met with Kenny in the bank's second-floor office, Alan was not specific about the nature of the loan, but mentioned the possibility of expanding the store. He perused Main Street past the drugstore and down to the town hall, where Roscoe would meet him on the 22nd. With no job and a potentially burgeoning business, Alan awaited Kenny's verdict.
Look, I just made some phone calls to the board of directors. You're my friend, and it's embarrassing for me to have to tell you this. I only want to know where I stand, Kenny. I'm not going to be blaming anybody if they don't give me the full amount. Kenny sat on the edge of the desk and balanced some paper in a manila folder. I am grateful for what you've done for this town. You've given hope to these people on the skids. And my brother is alive now where he might not have been. Well, I can hear this one coming, Kenny. It's nowhere near the full amount because I don't have the details of its use. The bank can give you five or six thousand, maybe ten, if somebody co-signs. Alan looked through the blinds toward Town Hall again. He nodded his head, knowing he would ask no one to be a part of his personal problem. I guess I need to get some more bodies through the general store's front door, eh, Kenny? Are you thinking of expanding the store? I can see by what happened last weekend and the crowd you got this week how you could do that. What would you do? First, I want a percentage of the profits of everything that happens in this vitalization to be put into that fund you had for international circuits. Kenny perked up at the suggestion, his eyes opening a bit wider. That's a great idea. If I could expand, Kenny, I'd start selling more space and make a larger eating area. I guess out back or maybe toward the tracks across the street. Soon he burst out of the door, leading to McGowan's office. Here comes Sooney. I have to see how she made out with Tug releasing that hillside property. Actually, we're going down to get antiques in Carnerville. Well, you ought to go to the auction. Auction? Once a month in Liberty Hall. I may do that. I hope Tug isn't being the jerk he's capable of being. Word's all about town that she's going to make that A-frame into a real house. Now that Tug's gone. You two wouldn't by any chance think of settling down there, would you? You can both co-sign on that property. Alan's mind riveted back 72 hours when Roscoe stood inside the unfinished railway station. Oh, I have trouble just seeing past tomorrow, Kenny. I like Sunni a lot, I can tell you that. Think about being a little bit more specific about the loan and I'll see what I can do. Alan, I'm glad you came back here. Everyone is. Thanks, I am too. But as he headed for the door, he wondered how long he'd be able to stay in Barclay. He would have to leave town if he didn't raise the money for Roscoe. All you need to do is draw up the papers and then you call me. Thanks, Ken. Wait, wait, before you go prancing out of here, he said, sliding open the top drawer of his cherrywood desk. He slid out a 16 by 20 color photograph, and as he turned it toward Alan... The town from the late 1950s was displayed in front of his eyes. Jacob located it in the library archives, and we had Albert send it out for blow-up. I ordered several copies. Alan held both sides of the print. That's how I remember Barclay. Jacob said it would be a good guide, and I agree. Take it with you. I know you're running off to see SUNY. Kenny, thank you. That's exactly where I'm going. Alan shook his hand and stepped into the silver metal elevator and pushed the button for the first floor. He had not, nor would he tell Sunni about Roscoe. The car descended slowly. More goods would roll into the general store either today or tomorrow. He had spent the $12,000 from weekend sales on replenishing his stock, as if Roscoe didn't exist. The elevator stopped, the doors opened, and he headed toward the front glass doors. He hurried through the doors and crossed the street. Soon he bundled up in a heavy blue parker, looked at Alan with moist eyes as he approached. What did Kenny say about the loan? Well, I qualify for some money. I'll have to see what I can do. What did McGowan say? Tug's making it difficult. Come on in, Alan. It's cold. Let's get in the truck and head for Cornerville. To his right, Tom Baines, in a hooded red sweatshirt and matching stocking cap, jogged up the sidewalk from the firehouse. He slowed and walked the final few yards. Alan, I wouldn't be running right now if it wasn't for you. Oh, I just gave you a little nudge. I'm sure you would have gotten out, Tom. I don't know. Another few seconds. Well, I'm glad you're all right. You stick with this guy, Sunni, and I hope they send Tug away for a long time. Say, when are you and Jacob having your talk about the project? You mean revitalizing parts of the town? Asked Alan. Yeah. Well, there's an informal gathering next week in Town Hall. I think it's Tuesday. We'll have some people throw out ideas. We have an overall plan. As he stood in the cold, he doubted whether he could even see completion of any portion of the plans. 
Roscoe's threats consumed his thoughts. Thanks again, buddy. He slapped Alan's coat and headed back down the sidewalk. Alan put his arm behind Suni's pocker and guided her to the truck. So what did Tug say? She started the truck and flipped the heat switches and then backed around. He's adamant about the lot being his. Suni, the guy burnt down your house and is being charged with attempted murder. She shifted and then headed back toward town. Hardy passed in his wide car and they both waved. But he owns the house. I don't fully understand it. Charlie kept throwing all this legal language at me. I don't know. Here, he said, unrolling the old downtown photo. Oh my God, where did you get this? Jacob gave it to Kenny, and Albert had the photo lab blow it up. This is wonderful, Alan. She put on her blinker for the back road to Carnerville. I just want to forget I ever met Tug. Alan nodded and rubbed his tense temples. Then he looked out the side window as they headed down the narrow road, lined with shacks and abandoned farms several miles south of town. Debris was strewn across the unkempt yards to the woods, and abandoned rusted cars were commonplace in the tall grass. The few children sitting on sagging porches or playing in the yards wore worn and dirty clothes. I've never been down here, even when we were kids. Yeah, you have. Remember your aunt took us to milk a cow at Mrs. Fitzgerald's barn? Wasn't like it is now. People had jobs. Farms are big conglomerates today. Places like Mrs. Fitzgerald's place just went away. Just like every other small business. Maybe we could get one going again. A farm? Yeah. You mean as part of Historic Barkley, she grinned. Well, at least Historic Barkley might give them some jobs. Or bring people up here to see a farm at work. But you need money to get a farm going. Money and time. Suni and Alan ate supper at a small restaurant in Connerville. With their truck filled with antique chairs, tables, chests, and assorted smaller items, they drove through the darkness back to the general store. On Friday, Alan wanted to make another trip and buy more goods for the mezzanine. As she turned down the dirt road, she saw Jacob's little silver car parked in front of the general store. She maneuvered her truck to the dock as Alan unlocked the back door and then pulled up the larger bay door. Ah, the merchant's return, said Melba from the loft door connecting the apartment. I'm glad to see Suni with a successful man. With Roscoe's pending arrival, his success was imaginary. The huge stack of import boxes had arrived overnight from Los Angeles. Well, we're ready for the weekend. There's more coming tomorrow, according to the truck driver, said Melba. You want some help? asked Jacob, sticking his head into the loft. Alan turned as soon he moved up the dock stairs. No, you relax up there, Professor. We'll get this stuff in. Kids get their homework done, Mom? Everybody fed? All under control, Sunny. You people eat? In Connerville. We'll be right up. Soon he helped him drag the larger pieces across the old concrete floor. Alan sent her upstairs as he unloaded the truck. When he closed and locked both doors, he noticed the answering machine light was flashing on his roll-top desk. He pushed the button and the tape rewound. Roscoe's crusty voice echoed around the stockroom. Just a reminder, Sackett. One week left. Call in your chips. Who is that? asked Suni from the loft door. Just an importer. I have some hot chocolate for you, Alan. Hot chocolate, that's great. As he started up the wooden staircase, he knew Roscoe would forgive nothing, nor give him any leeway. He was only concerned about the dollars in his pockets. Suni smiled and handed him a large Christmas mug with an enameled tree and presents below. Merry Christmas. I won't be much longer. Mrs. Hennessy is already talking about decorating the store inside and outside for the season, said Melba. Alan, you've brought the store and all of us back to life. All pish posh, said Alan. He spent several minutes with the kids. Ben was slated to have his cast removed next week and wanted to play soccer. The boy's voice mixed with thoughts of Roscoe on the machine downstairs. He reminded Ben to build up his muscles. Amanda followed him over to the table where Jacob had placed preliminary sketches of historic homes around the long table. The old photograph of Barclay was displayed next to the fruit basket. 
I would love to give tours of these houses, said Amanda. Jacob says you're really going to bring people out to see the silver mine. That'll be part of the grand tour, said Alan, smiling. But he questioned whether he would only be remembered as someone who had a few ideas for the town. Someone who mysteriously left Barclay, as did those people after the plant closed. You handle the marketing part, Alan, said Jacob. I'll have in-depth histories written for every square inch of this town. Alan nodded and smiled, but he was plotting strategy. Somehow he had to reach Nick Conti or someone in his office. He would not reach a settlement with Lamberts in enough time to stop Roscoe. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 22. Alan had doubts whether the last weekend's scenario would repeat, but beginning with late Friday afternoon, the cars trickled into the parking lot. Throughout the weekend, he waited on customers, carried out furniture, and rang the old register alongside Amanda and Melba. But in his mind, he focused on Roscoe and 12.30 on the 22nd. Although Nick was still away, his office claimed that Alan's constant messages were being relayed to him on vacation in Arizona. He loaded an old chest into a van from south of Boise. Most of the furniture was sold to people within a 150-mile radius, while the stock goods were purchased by almost anyone around the country. Some people wanted things shipped, and Alan readily obliged. He shook hands with the van's owner as Mrs. Hennessy peered inside the door. You have a call from a Mr. Conti. Alan raced up the porch steps into the store. He dodged a few customers along the counter and barged into the back room. The black phone receiver lay on the file folders scattered across the desk. Nick! Alan, you keep calling my office. His voice was distant. I shouldn't even be calling you. I'm glad you did, because you may not have a client by Friday. What are you talking about? Roscoe. He found me. He was up here. Nick, I have five days, and then they're coming up here. They want the whole loan. I'll second that, but I can't leave here. Why not? Just get out. I'm working on the Lamberts thing this week. See if we can schedule some hearing at the beginning of the year. Good. I hope you collect on my estate, Nick. I need that money now. Nick exhaled into the phone. Doesn't work instantaneously. You have to follow these things through the courts. Alan shook his head as Roscoe's wrinkled face took over his thoughts, and he slumped back in the oak chair. Pressure them. Alan closed his eyes. Maybe Nick was right. Roscoe had up the ante, and the rest of the world was not going to jump. Might be able to locate a place for you through friends, if you don't mind speaking Spanish for a year or two until this lawsuit thing is settled. Alan scanned the frozen dirt lane. The dimmer autumn light brushed the trees back toward the lake. He pinched the bridge of his nose. I'm calling them myself. Not a good idea. I can't leave here, Nick. He looked at the customers browsing in the aisles through the open door. Up front, Sunni had just entered with Ben. I have commitments here now. Break them. Had several conversations with some prosecutors, I know. Roscoe's people don't make idle threats. You need to get out or they'll kill you. Alan did not argue, but as he hung up the phone, he realized he might have to leave Barkley. He ran his clenched fist along his chin as Sunni appeared in the doorway. What's the matter, Alan? You look like a man who's going to be sick. Alan turned quickly and stood and smiled. No, we've just been so frantic. I have a busy week ahead of me trying to replenish stock. I know, you're out of almond amaretto coffee and a couple of the jams. He looked at her smooth face and curly hair. The prospect of not seeing her again was not something he could face. I love you, Suni. I love you, too. She produced a slight smile, tilting her head as she kissed him. Are you all right? Sure. Amanda leaned inside the door. Alan, do you have any more Bayberry candles? Yes, ma'am. He ran his fingers along Suni's cheek as he turned to head for the loft. I'll be right out. He trotted up the stairs and turned on the overhead fluorescence. As he rummaged through a long line of imported cardboard boxes, Suni climbed to the top of the stairs. He turned with a box of Bayberry candles in his arms. Something else is wrong, Alan Sackett. No, everything is fine. 
What can I do? He adjusted the box on his forearms, raised his brows, and laughed like a clown. Make sure this store makes money. She grinned, but must have seen the worried look on his face as they moved down the stairs. When he had left Barkley, maybe she would remember what he said. He carried the box into the store, and Amanda quickly pulled out a Bayberry candle. Soon he watched him from the door as he stocked the shelves, his stomach wrenching as he imagined himself leaving town and never seeing her again. Brian, you have to talk with Archer. Get them to settle. His friend chuckled. Why the big rush? Roscoe, he wants all the money by Friday. You screwed. Thanks, Brian. You have to talk to Archer. Number one, I could jeopardize my position within the company. Alan stood at the desk and banged his fist on the oak top. Your position? What about my life? Oh, this is all legal now. Archer can't do anything about it. I'll tell you one thing, Alan. Vanish. You sound like Nick Conti. Alan pulled his teeth together as the butterflies swarmed through his gut. Maybe you're right. Alan quickly ended the conversation when Brian talked about Melinda living in New York. He walked into the store past a swath of empty shelves, indicating this week's brisk business. But tears welled in his eyes as he understood he would have to leave before Friday at 12.30. The depleted aisles needed restocking by morning. He grabbed his jacket off the counter, opened the front door, and stepped into the frigid air. The dreary moon was waning, and the pervasive chill enlivened his cheeks. He headed for the porch swing and grasped the cold support chains as he sat down. The swing creaked as Alan stared into the starry night. He had enough spare cash to go wherever Nick advised. The town lights formed a pin-dot outline across the deep hills. He loved the town almost as much as he loved Sunni. Hey, Alan, said Ben. How did you open that door without the bells ringing, Benji? The bells rang. You're stargazing. He balanced his crutches and crossed the porch without touching his feet on the boards. Your arms must be like iron. I went the length of the basketball court at school last week. Wow. Cast comes off on Thursday. Thursday. Yeah, then I have to start this therapy in Carnerville. Alan looked to the sky again. You're a good kid, Benji. You take care of your mother. Mom? Yeah, and promise me one thing. What's that, Alan? Don't ever leave, Barkley. Your sister, either. It's a tough world out there, kid. This is the place you need to live. The one place on Earth you can get peace. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 23 Alan decided to conduct the historic Barkley presentation Tuesday night with Jacob. During his conversations with Nick over the past few hours, he became acutely aware that Lamberts would drag out the proceedings as long as possible. Alan had tried five times to reach Archer personally and finally accepted Nick's offer of leaving on a plane to Texas Wednesday night. His only hope lay in the long-term settlement with Lamberts that could take years and might not yield anything more than paying legal bills. He instructed Nick to express mail the remaining loan money in the form of a check bringing the balance he owed to Roscoe down. One thing Alan could do for Barkley and all 9,000 people was to present a plan for the future. People like Kenny Baines and Sunni were bright and enthusiastic enough to implement the plan and revitalize the town. He met Jacob carrying briefcases and the sketches outside the downstairs meeting hall. You look as if you're back in class, Professor. That's a good feeling, Alan. I haven't felt this way since my wife was alive. Thank you. Why, thank me. You're the one who had the dream. Or, I've had the historical knowledge, but you're the driving force. Alan pursed his lips. Listen, I only want to do what's best for the town. Kenny appeared beside him. He's right. Who? We all want to do what's best for the town, but you're the one making it happen. Nothing's happened yet. I appreciate the accolades, but it's going to take years to fully realize this dream. We're not going anywhere, Alan said Kenny as he brought Alan inside. A smattering of applause began up back and swelled through the hall as Jacob handed Alan the sketches. Alan placed them on the tabletop front and thanked the crowd as he raised his hands up to quell the thunder. Soon he whispered in his ear, They're all lined up outside, Alan, to hear how you're going to save their town. 
It's not me, it's every one of you, Sunni. He thought about himself a few days from now on some jet while people buzzed through the town wondering why he had disappeared. Don't underestimate yourself. She kissed his cheek and took a seat in the front row. He didn't know how he could live without her. Kenny started the meeting with some appropriate business, raising money from some referendum passed last summer. As Alan stared at the cinder blocks, Jacob leaned toward him. You all right there, Alan? Ready to revitalize. Listen, I need to talk to you once this meeting is over. Sure. Kenny turned to both men and outstretched his hand. We have a team here with us. Two talented men, not born here in Barclay, but our team will accept any ringers. The crowd laughed and broke into a stilted applause. I had a chance to review these plans, and it won't happen overnight, but I at least think we have a chance to pump back some muscle into our town. I really don't know who's up here first. Jacob smiled and motioned for Alan to stand. The crowd applauded again as Alan placed the first sketch onto a large easel before the crowd. I know this isn't a professional sketch, but we're working on getting an architect. You're too hard on yourself, Alan, yelled Hardy. Alan smiled. First, let me say Kenny is right when he says this will take a long time. I believe this should be done in segments. The old adage of first things first should apply. One of those first things is the reopening of the train station by Christmas. Combined with the use of the computer website, we can attract people up here. The general store is an example of what we can do using the net. We'll add to our website as the expansion continues. Why come to Barkley, Idaho? Are there other spots in the United States as rural and beautiful? Well, I don't think so. But many other people might disagree. As in anything you're selling, you take your equal product and demonstrate to people why they should be buying it from you. No matter what you have to do here in the next few years, you have to realize that every one of these tourists traveling up here pays your mortgage, fixes the roads, gives you extra money. Why should people come to Barclay? Because we care about spending their money up here. That sounds crass, but it may even be crude. But that's what makes the wheels spin. That is the bottom line. Now, where do we start? We need places for people to eat and rest their weary bones. We'll show you those plans in a few minutes. And we need a tour of the area, emphasizing the mine and the town's buildings. We must revitalize those buildings and the mine before we even get on the web with that information. We need more stores, shops, and crafts placed along the highway and into town. I, for one, welcome competition. Eventually, we can make every building in this town one part of these components that I just described. Let the town establish its own charter within the IC fund, with a certain amount of profits going back to revitalizing the town. I know what that planned closing did to this area. I've seen the results of corporate decisions in my own personal life and as I drive through town. Where there is no paycheck, there is no hope. People suffer. Alan straightened the first sketch of the Gatlin House along the highway. For the next hour, the town hall meeting sounded like the British House of Commons, everyone barking out questions, comments, and editorial rumblings. Despite the apparent confusion, the drawings of the highway historic houses had a positive impact. Hershey Edwards arrived late, but had questions about who actually owned the mine. Charlie McGowan was the first to bring up the issue of liability. Bringing people to the mine also posed a logistical problem. No one was quite sure how far down the tourists could safely be brought. It was Amanda, who stood next to her mother, walked up in front of the group and presented a well-thought-out version of a brief tour around the outside and the upper edges of the mine. Alan watched Suni beaming as Amanda briefed the town on aspects of the mine and the forgotten miners. She received a round of applause, making her blush as she sat down. I want to say, said Jacob as the applause died out, as an historian, your talk, Amanda, was well-researched and presented beautifully. I will grade you an A+. Miss Sadler, you've been very helpful in transcribing and researching the history of this town. I second that, said Alan, flipping back to the restaurants and the lodging facilities. He let Jacob sit down and soon he escorted Amanda with a friend to the exit. Alan checked his watch. It was past 9.30 and a school night. 
When Sunni returned to the hall, Alan pointed to the sketch. It is imperative that every detail of a person's stay in Barclay remain authentic and to the historic flavor we wish to create. All employees, the motif, and the food, right down to the print on the menu, should let people know that they've left their everyday mundane lives and have traveled back to a simpler place. No one left the meeting. When it finally broke up around 11 o'clock, an article had been passed to hire the services of an architect. A committee was established to take bids before Christmas. Alan accepted the lead position on the committee, but did not fully realize until he left the hall with SUNY that he would not oversee that committee. People slapped his back and congratulated him with handshakes all the way down the corridor. I was so proud of Amanda. Sunni shook his arm. Something's bothering you. Just a lot of work ahead of us, and I want it all to work. You'll make it work. There's no doubt in my mind you'll make it work. Alan smiled through the exit doors. Jacob stood next to the ball field backstop. Alan, could I see you for a second? I'll get the truck warmed up, said Sunni, squeezing his hand. Sure. Alan crossed the yellow grass near the abandoned baseball field. You're not having any doubts, are you, Jacob? Alan opened the backstop gate and they walked inside the field. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I was outside the station the other night when that man Roscoe... What did you hear? Enough to know that you're in real serious trouble, and unless you have some big money coming up here real soon, things could get worse. Alan sat alone on the cold bleaches along the first baseline. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well, Professor. And I don't have the money. Jacob looked down at him. What are you going to do? Alan shook his head, not wanting to reveal his plan. I've instructed my lawyer to get some money to Roscoe, but I'm still several hundred thousand dollars short. Surely this is an illegal activity. The authorities will do nothing, said Alan. We're presented a wonderful vision of the future here tonight, Jacob, but I'm not going to be around to see it. Make sure they don't stray. Stick to the basics that we talked about tonight. Jacob's lips tightened, and he put his hand on Alan's shoulder. I remember one of your quotes when you first arrived at Nora Pillsbury's. Oh yeah, what was that? More platitudes for nightly conversation? No, it was from Samuel Goldwyn. It's an impossible situation, but it has possibilities. How about Shelley? First our pleasures die, and then our hopes, and then our fears. And when these are dead, the dead is due. Dust claims dust, and we die too. Downsized by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 24. Alan would have to pack his suitcases quickly and leave town Thursday morning as everyone went about their daily business. As he restocked the store shelves from a frantic weekend, Alan was sure that the store would be a vital part of historic Barclay. He had written a letter to Charlie McGowan stating that he wanted SUNY to have sole possession of the store. The harder effort, composing the proper words to SUNY, had been written and rewritten a dozen times. How would he explain how much he loved her, yet he had to leave Barclay and never return? On Wednesday night, he and SUNY followed the buzzing line of people past the movie theater's popcorn machine and glass counter containing an assortment of candy. Alan stared at her, knowing he had to leave or be killed. He kept his arm around her throughout the film. The owner of the theater stood down front at the end of the show and offered a free show during the Christmas season. I want to thank you, said Pop Ridden, firmly pressing Alan's hand. Me? You donated half the materials we needed for the station, Pop. Listen, you and I both know business, Alan. We know what's going to happen with that station and with historic Barclay. My business will soar. It'll be better than the International Circuit's days. Only you had the savvy to make it happen. Well, let's make sure it does, Pop. He shook Pop's hand again, and Sunni, talking with Pop's wife, took Alan's arm. He closed his eyes briefly as the tension swelled. Alan, you look like you're going to a funeral. What the heck is wrong? They moved slowly along the parking meters and back toward Benson's. Alan pretended to smile. Oh, just all the confusion. You mean with the store? The store, all the planning for historic Barclay? I need some time away. No, no, I know you all too well, Alan. All week long, something else has been bothering you. Alan shrugged his shoulders and looked ahead toward the large handwritten sign for the auction hall 
for the auction at Church Hall, for the auction at Liberty Hall. Now let's see if there's still some of Barclay's best junk for the store. Even an hour and a half before the beginning of the auction, the hall was packed. Up front, a round-bellied auctioneer wearing a red-striped vest pressed his lips near a silver floor microphone. The quick cadence of his voice was hard to follow as he flipped over the ascending bids from the floor. The hall was hot, even for late fall, and a wide assortment of furniture and knick-knacks were piled on the wood stage. Alan, cup of coffee in hand, was immediately surrounded by people who approached him about the town's revitalization plans. The enthusiasm for the project touched everyone. When he was gone, he hoped the enthusiasm would carry over, but a heightened melancholy swept over him. These people and the entire town were now a vital part of his life. His laughter and enjoyment were not easily capped. For the next few hours, he and Sunni bid on numerous pieces of furniture, he joked and talked about the project with people who were at the meeting. Many people he had never met shook his hand and added their suggestions for revamping the town. At 20 minutes to midnight, the last item of flowered vase was auctioned for $5 to a lady from south of town. Alan left Sunni inside and went to get the truck. He talked with Henry Fitzgerald, one of the displaced farmers on the road to Connerville. Bringing back the farm to its former high level of production was not something quickly accomplished. Henry suggested that the fields be planted in stages, animals brought in in groups, and the farm, like the town, could be slowly brought back to life. Thanks for everything, Alan. Oh, I've only given a plan, he said laughing. You've brought us all together. Henry shook his hand again and headed across the street to his faded red truck. Alan walked briskly toward the movie theater. Henry took several attempts to start the old truck, and exhaust spewed into the street. As Alan turned, someone grabbed his shoulder. One of Roscoe's men from the station, in jeans and a leather jacket, smiled and released his grip. Alan's heart raced. Hello, Sackett. We don't have an appointment until tomorrow. Yeah, exactly right. You make sure you keep that appointment, and Roscoe is on his way up here. I don't know whether you have his money or how you don't. I don't care. My job is to make sure you don't try and back out of this. Alan's anger swelled. Yeah, what are you going to do? Tuck me in for the night? Funny boy. Laugh this one off. If you ain't in front of that town hall at 1230, you won't see your little sweetie again. Or her kids. Alan grabbed his leather jacket. You've gone too far, pal. The guy swung a shiny handgun in his face and pushed hard into Alan's temple. You stay put, Sackett. He tucked the gun under his jacket again. See you at 12.30. Alan stood in the cold as the guy disappeared behind the brick movie theater. He was stunned and unable to formulate a viable plan. As he wandered over to Sunni's truck and opened the door, he adjusted to the fact that he would have to face Roscoe. He would have no money and no chance to locate any additional money. Slowly, he brought the truck back to Liberty Hall, passed by the church, and rumbled down the hill around back. Soon he talked to several friends as he looked over his shoulder and backed the truck toward the building. She grinned as she peered in the open window. Thought we lost you, Alan. I'm right here. He opened the door and tickled her chin, constructing a happy facade as he inwardly panicked. I thought you would have already loaded up the stuff. He's asking for trouble, isn't he, Alice? She asked her friend and she pretended to box with Alan. Alan broke away, his face tightened and he went inside to claim the bid items. Keeping up the facade required an extensive concentration. He drove back to the store with Sunni as if he were on summer vacation, singing and laughing. When he checked his watch, he saw he only had 13 hours left until the showdown with Roscoe. Leaving now was impossible. With Sunni and her kids now in the mix, leaving was impossible. He locked the bay door once everything was unloaded and headed upstairs. Soon he lay in bed as he poured some milk from the refrigerator. His mind was like an emptied computer and fatigue racked his body. He climbed into bed and held her under the quilt. The room slowly moved around him, and with no resistance he floated into a deep sleep. Alan never called Nick Conti. He spent the morning bringing the auction items up to the mezzanine and listened to Mrs. Hennessy's chatter on the phone as he priced each item. 
During the rest of the morning, he stalked the shelves and, and placed items on the aisle hooks. When he heard Suni's truck outside, he knew she had just returned from picking up Ben at the school. They would have lunch, and then she'd bring him down to Carnerville to have his cast removed. Fearing Roscoe's people, Alan had called Georgie Poggi earlier and asked him to accompany Suni and Ben to his sister's physical therapy in Carnerville. Can we kick some soccer balls on the field tonight? asked Ben. Alan raised his brows and talked through a mouthful of peanut butter and jelly. It's freezing out there. Besides, said Suni, you'll have a regimen of exercises you have to do, Ben. You can't just run out on the field. Why not? Why not? Tell him, Alan. Well, listen to your mother, Benji. She knows what she's talking about. Alan accompanied them onto the porch. Suni turned before she descended the stairs. Georgie Porgy's coming with us to see his sister. You don't want to come with us, Alan? No, I'll, uh, I'll stay back. Okay, I'm letting Ben order pizza tonight. Kind of a celebration. I love you, Suni, he said, and then he bounded down the porch stairs. He threw his arms around her. I'm so glad I met you again, really. She gazed up at him with glossy eyes and kissed him. I'm glad we met again, too. Oh, stop the mushy stuff, said Ben from the passenger side. Don't ever stop the mushy stuff, Alan, said Suni. Alan nodded, his face in a knot as he turned and moved inside without looking back. The truck started and he shut the door. Is she gone? asked Mrs. Hennessy, holding the phone. What is it, Mrs. Hennessy? Jacob wanted to speak with Suni. Oh, she'll be back. Tell him she'll be back. Downsize by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 25 Alan held two envelopes in his hand. The first was addressed to Charlie McGowan and contained specific instructions about handing over the store to Suni. In his other hand was a letter to Suni, written in one sitting an hour ago. He told her that he would have married her had he cleaned up his personal debts and not been confronted by Roscoe. He grasped the mailbox metal handle and placed both letters on the tray. Slowly as he gazed down at his watch, nearing 12.30, he tilted the tray and let the letters slide into the mailbox. He adjusted his tie and suit coat as he faced down Main Street toward the town hall's brick facade, casting shadows in the autumn light across the street and grass. He crossed at the walk, his hands and arms twitching with nervous energy. Up the highway, a beige SUV glided gently up the hill and into the town parking lot. Roscoe and three other well-dressed men stepped from the car. Roscoe stood motionless on the grass 200 yards away. Alan inhaled the frosty air as he continued down the asphalt. It was almost 12.30. Through the light and shadows, he stared at the quiescent town. He had only taken a few steps when Albert emerged from his drugstore and drifted into the street with him. Albert, you need to get back to your store. I ain't going anywhere, Alan. We're here with you, Alan, said Charlie McGowan, stepping onto the sidewalk with his wife. Kenny Baines and his bank employees stood on the sidewalk to his right. Hershey Edwards, spotting reflective sunglasses, stepped smoking a cigarette with people from his real estate office. Hardy crawled out of his gaudy green taxi and moved onto the street. Nora Pillsbury near Bordas stood with the owner of the movie theater, positioned under the marquee. Pop Ridden's massive lumber truck screeched to a stop at the highway light, and at least 30 employees disembarked onto Main Street. More townspeople formed a swelling crowd who trickled into the street from the side alleys. Kenny, carrying a brown leather briefcase, put his arm around Alan. Seems as though the International Circuit Fund has increased. We're not going to let you down, Alan. I can't let you do this. I don't think you understand what's at stake here. They understand it all, said Jacob, appearing in the crowd. Alan swallowed, and the tears formed as more people marched in from the state highway and along the sidewalk. Hundreds of reassuring faces lined Main Street to the post office as the throng moved forward. Suni, Amanda, Mrs. Hennessy, and Melba followed Ben, walking on his own accord, to meet Alan in the center of Main Street. Suni! She locked his right elbow, and Ben and Amanda were on her left. You don't have to worry about a thing, Alan Sackett. Alan smiled, and they all surged forward. Roscoe and his three henchmen drew their guns. 
Tom Baines cocked a hunting rifle, and Georgie Poggi removed his gun. The clicking sound of more fully armed rifles echoed in the square. Roscoe rubbed his mouth and chin and fiddled with his gun. In full uniform, Georgie Porgy marched up to Roscoe. Town people of Barkley, Idaho, humbly request that you put away your weapons. Roscoe studied Georgie Porgy's gun and quickly panned the crowd before giving a nod to his men. Then he tucked his own gun under his suit coat and took one step toward Georgie Porgy and pointed at Allen. That man owes me over $400,000. We're aware of that, said Kenny, standing between Georgie Porgy and Allen. Your legal position isn't worth a plug nickel, said McGowan. Well, you can bring all your people out of the woodwork here, but I ain't letting him walk away with our money. This town, said Kenny, stepping by Georgie Porgy, thinks that you've been quite impatient with one of its best citizens, Mr. Roscoe. He's from L.A., pal. Roscoe's hand moved toward his gun, but retracted again when he checked the prodigious crowd. Sooner or later, we'll get him. Oh, no, you won't, said Sooney. Kenny set the briefcase on top of a covered trash bin. We want to propose a deal. What kind of deal? Fair and square, said McGowan. Alan moved around Georgie Porgy, and Roscoe gave him an unpleasant glance. Then he looked at the envelopes inside Kenny's briefcase. Kenny leaned toward him. This is a poor town, Mr. Roscoe. No one up here is what you might consider well off. But every citizen in this town will guarantee your terms with Alan Sackett. I want my money. The town will cut you a check for $5,000 a month. Do it the first of the month. Do it the first of the month until the sum is paid. Roscoe shook his head. I ain't having some hick town dictating to me. No deal. I want all my money today. You see these people out here, Mr. Roscoe? They're people who had nothing before Alan Sackett arrived in town and gave them a dream. Oh, you really touch my heartstrings. Listen, you can bounce us out of here today, but I have the means to find Sackett and his friends and kill him. Yes, you can do that, but you won't get your money, will you? And I would say you'd have 9,000 angry people at you, Mr. Roscoe, who will find you. Roscoe exposed his teeth and shook his head. Ah! He moved back to talk to his men in the car. A few minutes later, he stepped outside. Will you agree to our terms? asked Kenny. He raised his index finger and was about to speak. Then he pursed his lips. Where do I sign? Kenny turned over the briefcase and removed a pen from his pocket and held it in the air. Roscoe grabbed the pen, glanced at Allen, and then back at Kenny. I ought to run this by my lawyer. Everything is legally sound, Roscoe, said McGowan. Roscoe grumbled and growled as he scrawled his name across the paper. He deposited the pen in the briefcase and swung toward Allen. You one lucky dude, Sackett. The sun lay close to the distant ridges as Roscoe motioned his men into the car. He got in the passenger seat, and the car moved through the crowd and back onto the highway. Alan watched the car accelerate down the hill and past the general store. The crowd rocked with cheers and crazy applause. Soon he gripped Alan's arm as Kenny stepped forward and waited for the noise to stop. He raised his arms into the air, but the demonstration continued unabated for another few minutes. People were still wild as Kenny spoke. Even though the excitement is over, at least I thought it was... Alan, I want to make it clear on behalf of the town the monies forwarded to Roscoe constitute your fee. My fee? he asked, smiling and looking at Sunni. Yes, as the newly appointed town consultant for Historic Barclay, it is my job to inform you that your office has been painted at town hall and we're working on getting you a desk and a phone. Alan held back his emotions, keeping his hand over his mouth. And I was just given a note from Mrs. Hennessy. The railroad called the store, Alan. Barkley will be the first scheduled stop from Boise, which will take place on December 25th at 12 p.m. Burst of kinetic energy rocked the crowd. Kenny raised his hands and paused as soon he held Alan's arm. He looked directly at Alan as his voice boomed out over the town's weathered brick buildings. And on behalf of all the people of Barkley, Idaho, 
It is my pleasure to officially extend the town's thanks for all your plans and dreams. Alan Sackett, welcome home. Now get to work. Everyone shares the compassion of the town when George Bailey is bailed out by the citizens of Bedford Falls, and even the IRS inspector is in on donating some money to his cause. It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie. Alan Sackett's journey had a different route from L.A. than George Bailey did in the alternate timeline where he had never been born. Courage is contagious, and everyone has within them a notion of bliss just waiting to be found. Now, the next podcast, as they say, is another story. We will meet the despicable, the opportunistic, and the arrogant Gordon Butts, who will do anything to rise to the top. But alas, his arrogance is his undoing. The book is called Framed by Robert P. Fitton. It begins next time in New Jersey, which is where I'm headed. Cheers from Barkley, Idaho. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.